The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox and these are your headlines. China's second quarter GDP slows to 6.2%. That is the lowest quarterly growth in 27 years as the trade war with the U.S. drags on. Clashes, though, breaking out between protesters and police in Hong Kong amid ongoing unrest over China's influence. AB InBev pulls its Budweiser IPO, cancelling what would have been the year's biggest listing due to weak demand. Records are smashed as Novak Djokovic claims an epic fifth Wimbledon title while England's cricketers win their first ever World Cup in dramatic fashion. And as the race heats up to find the next managing director of the IMF, I'm here in Dubrovnik as the fund hosts an event on Central and Eastern Europe. I'm speaking to Tao Zhang, the deputy managing director, later on CNBC. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. Happy Monday. We are coming off of another strong week for U.S. equities. All three major indices ended in positive territory on Friday, albeit volumes were thin. Taking a look back at last week, the big driver of market moves was Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell's dovish testimony to Congress that really set the tone for markets throughout the week last week. Now looking ahead to this week, we've got G7 meeting taking place in Paris this week, so we'll look for some headlines there. And then earnings kick off in a big way, starting with U.S. banks kicking off today. So we'll look for some insight around what the Fed's moves and outlook has meant for bank earnings as well as the broader corporate space. So just taking a look at at the moves we saw Friday, S&P ended just about a half a percentage point higher. The Nasdaq ended about six-tenths of one percent higher. And the Dow Jones ended nearly one percent higher. Now shifting gears, let's take a look at overnight action in Asia. The big event uh, there has been the China China Q2 GDP numbers uh, have come in at 6.2%. That's GDP growth. Uh, That was in line with expectations, albeit the slowest pace of growth that we have seen in at least 27 years since that data has been been recorded. Now, interestingly, a lot of the June data that's come through has actually been better than the market had been expecting. So the likes of retail sales, industrial output, actually providing a bit of optimism when it comes to the momentum in the Chinese economy. But that that GDP number nevertheless came in at 6.2%. And taking a look at what this has meant for um, markets, the Shanghai Composite trading higher at the moment, but uh, fairly muted moves when it comes to magnitude. So up about 0.76%. The Hang Seng up about 0.14%. Over in Hong Kong, we saw more protests take place over the weekend. So some tensions continue to dominate the landscape there. Uh, Over in Australia, stocks traded down about a half a percentage point. And just worth noting that uh, in Japan, markets are closed today. So that's why you're, uh, you're not seeing it on the board beside me. Now, let's take a look at European markets and see how we're looking to open up the week. Last week, it was a negative week for the stock 600. It ended about 0.84% lower. We saw some real underperformance in German stocks last week, and we saw outperformance in Italian stocks. Now, at the start of trade this week, it looks like the DAX is going to bounce back a little bit to the tune of 35 points at the open. Italian stocks continuing higher, about 80 points open, uh, as far as the early indication suggests. Steve? 
Thank you very much indeed for that, Juliana. Right, Chinese economic growth has slowed to its worst rate in 27 years in the second quarter as U.S. trade tensions drag on. The 6.2% reading was the weakest since quarterly reporting began in the early 1990s. Uh, But other key activity data, as Juliana was pointing out, beat expectations. Industrial production, retail sales rebounding from the month before. So, look, it's a nuanced set of figures. You read the headlines... It's the lowest figure. Look at the subtext. Actually, they're better. Well, joining us live from Hong Kong is Frederick Neumann, who is MD and co-head of Asian Economics Research at HSBC. Frederick, nice to see you. Look, as a seasoned watcher of the Chinese data as well, what do you make of it as well? Because, of course, markets like weaker data in many ways because they think they're going to get more of a policy reaction, more Kool-Aid for the system as well. But these were subtle figures, weren't they? They were ups and downs. Well, a lot of nuances here. You're right. The GDP number is lower, generally lower, but as expected. But there were some kernels of positive numbers here. For example, industrial production picking up quite nicely. The retail numbers a bit distorted, but also higher. And so there's some sense here that there's a bit more in terms of investment, industrial production coming through on a domestic side. However, that would also mean don't expect bink on stimulus here because it's still kind of tracking side sideways is not falling off a cliff, which is probably what you need for the for Beijing to come out with a big policy guns blazing. So in terms of the equity market reaction, I mean, tempered moves today, as the viewers can see uh, on the right hand side of the screen, the Hang Seng up eight tenths of one percent, uh, the Shenzhen up one point three percent. Are we rallying because of the headline figure or rallying because of relief at the the underlying figure, such as the retail sales? It's probably more relieved that the uh, the economy hasn't broken to the downside, really, that June was perhaps a bit better than expected. So some relief here could have been worse. But at the same time, we're not going to see these runaway markets until we see very clear signals of policy easing. And these numbers just aren't so bad that Beijing would have to forcefully react. So a bit of a relief here, but it's not going to probably have much follow through because Beijing is not going to throw sort of a a big stimulus at the market at this stage in the cycle. If I can dig in a little bit uh, on some of the data in more detail, automobile sales uh, seem to have risen by 17% in the month of June in this uh, latest data. But this conflicts with some of the weaker data points we've seen in the auto space in China. So are there some distorting uh, distorting factors that are affecting this, this figure today? Absolutely. There are new environmental emission standards coming into force on July 1st. So a lot of the uh, uh, dealers had to clear inventory, heavy discounting that pumped up sales of older vehicles that don't meet the new emission standards. And that drove up uh, car sales. But remember, car production didn't necessarily rise because car producers still looking at fairly soggy demand over the second half of the year. And that affects the retail numbers. Big jump there. But remember, one third of the retail sales index is really car sales. So that bump in car sales, which is likely to be just one month, lifting retail sales, we're likely going to see some payback going into third quarter on that front. That's why the retail sales sales numbers, we probably need to fade a little bit here. Some bit of uh, wrong signal. the big encouraging sign was really industrial production. That suggests that the underlying heavy industry uh, is, is doing a little bit better than expected.
Now, uh, as you say, it's not a clear signal that the Beijing would be looking for if they want to engage in more stimulus. But I'm curious in the in the debate that is going on in Beijing right now in terms of uh, putting forth more supportive stim- stimulus versus holding back. We know that they have been uh, making more of an effort to be mindful about the leverage that's built up in the system. How much of a concern do you think this is for Chinese authorities and how much is this going to hold them back from uh, igniting more stimulus measures if they do see the need in the coming months. They keep uh, refraining one particular term, which is fine-tuning, fine-tuning, fine-tuning. So that means we're going to just adjust policy at the margin as the data comes in. If it weakens, we're going to add a bit more stimulus. But don't expect this big stimulus that we saw in the past, particularly when it comes to credit in the system. Beijing has made it very clear they do not want to see a strong credit cycle again. They still have these long-term goals of reigning in leverage. So what that means is, you're not going to see big rate cuts, big triple R cuts, a flood of credit unless the data breaks lower. And today's data is not bad enough to really trigger that flood of credit. And uh, the other thing is on the external side, we also have to see how the U.S.-China trade tensions evolve. If they don't deteriorate massively, then Beijing is likely going to just move incrementally on stimulus as well. I was going to say, Frederick, look, there is a pattern of slowdown in the Chinese economic data going back, you know, 15 years when we had the double digit figures. Now we've had this slowdown generally. I would have expected these kind of numbers, certainly at a headline rate, to have happened regardless uh, of trade tensions. How credible is the headline figure? It seems a very conveniently nice figure that, yes, we're slowing down, but at a very gentle pace. Where's the violence in the headline figure, considering what we're seeing, what commentators are saying the the, the magnitude uh, of these trade talks are? Why aren't they bigger figures on the back of trade concerns? You're right. Relative to the headlines, this is actually not a bad print, 6.2%. Yes, lowers on record and so forth, but it, everything that has been thrown at the Chinese economy from the external side, actually, it's quite resilient. And here, there's one critical thing to note, and that is that the economy is no longer as externally driven as many commentators would like. Yes, exports are important, but they're not much more important than, say, to the Japanese economy, or the U.S. economy. In fact, China has a much bigger, more dynamic domestic market, and that provides resilience. And we see that in these numbers, right? GDP, yes, is lower, but it's not really falling off a cliff as of yet. I mean, is it being fueled by what we fear in Western economies, in certainly Anglo-Saxon economies as well? Is it being fueled by an explosion of debt? Now, just looking at the debt figures in China as a whole, yes, they've been going up dramatically, but that rate of growth has slowed more recently as well. Are you concerned about the debt side of the economy? Not really at this stage. In fact, in our numbers, the total debt to GDP ratio has actually fallen in the last couple of years as Beijing has sort of tightened up on, on credit policy. Now, that always entails a bit of pain. So you see increases in defaults in the system, but it's not systemically threatening. It's just that at the margin, as credit becomes tighter, obviously marginal borrowers will feel the squeeze. From a long-term perspective, is always what we wanted the Chinese authorities to do. Remember, we've been having discussions back five, seven years ago, wanting the Chinese to run a tighter ship. And now they're delivering it. uh, And we should actually applaud them for not turning on the credit taps, even as they come under external pressure.
Now, Frederick, we have uh, been concerned about the Chinese housing market many times in the past. We got some fresh data now overnight on that front. Growth in China's new home prices cooled in June. Sales shrank for a second month, but building starts and investment quickened. Putting this all together, uh, what do you think about this state of the housing market there? And is this a cause for concern for you? Yeah, that is probably one of the key risks for the second half of the year. We know the trade side is a drag. We know that infrastructure is kind of steady, but not really accelerating. What's holding up growth at the moment is housing construction. Now, the risk is that housing construction is running ahead of sales, and that means rising inventories and will force developers from pulling back construction. And is that cool down in construction, which may weigh on growth over the second half of the year. And that's why these numbers are so important. And if house price is starting to cool, demand is starting to cool, that puts even greater downside pressure on construction. So watch the housing market. It's probably the biggest uh, uh, sort of factor in driving the cycle over the next two or three quarters than trade is or, or anything else in the economy. All right. Uh, thank you very much for weighing in. Frederick Newman, MD and co-head of Asian Economics Research at HSBC. Now, uh, let's dive into the latest on the Huawei story. Huawei is reportedly planning hundreds of U.S. job cuts amid ongoing uncertainty over its American blacklisting. The layoffs will focus on the Chinese tech giants USR and D-Unit Futureway, according to The Wall Street Journal. But that's amid a separate report that the Trump administration will soon lift the sales ban on a case-by-case -case basis. The U.S. could approve licenses to allow sales to Huawei in as little as the next two weeks, according to Reuters. That's after President Trump said a softer line on Huawei was part of the trade truce negotiated with President Xi at the G20. So they're not a security threat. This is all about a bargaining chip, yeah? If the licenses are coming back in, if they're allowed to uh, deal with U.S. companies, they were never a, uh, a security threat. This is always about trade, was it? Definitely undermines the position that it's a security threat if you're willing to negotiate so quickly. Mm. Yeah, it's extraordinary because I, I thought a lot of the policy hawks, both in the administration and in Congress and what have you, were saying, we must not deal with this company, we must not have it in. And it was all about security. But, but it seems now, given these concessions, which if the accurate reports are accurate, then, then it was actually just a bargaining chip. Never really mattered in the end. Anyway, there you go. We'll leave that one hanging. Uh, coming up on the show, protesters and police clash in Hong Kong amid ongoing unrest over China's control. The latest after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend.
Tens of thousands of demonstrators taking to the streets of Hong Kong again over the weekend, still angered by the proposed extradition bill and the erosion of Hong Kong's democratic freedoms. The protest escalated into violent clashes with police at a shopping mall. Well, look, Sherry, as ever, is live in Hong Kong with more details. Sherry, what's the latest? The latest is that we're not going to see any letting up in this attention that in Hong Kong. And of course, this past weekend, a very interesting scenes are playing out, um, violent scenes and ugly scenes playing out in Hong Kong. As you pointed out, one mall in Shatin area also had to be the backdrop for this clash between the Hong Kong police and protesters. But also, it was very interesting what we saw on Saturday because Really, the Hong Kong protests are all about spreading the message and they want to get that message out to different parts of Hong Kong as well. So they actually took their demonstration, this rally against extradition bill in Hong Kong to an area near the boundary with mainland China as well. It really goes to show how much of uh, grievances there were with the Hong Kong people against mainland Chinese shoppers and traders. And uh, you're you know, looking at really the violent scenes that actually led to arrest as well as uh, a few injuries as well. Um, and also, uh, one important point that I want to make out to you is that journalists in, in Hong Kong also took to the streets on Sunday as well because they actually uh, are critical of the way that Hong Kong police handled frontline media members and they are demanding more press freedom in Hong Kong as well. So that's really the scene that we're bracing for, you know, on perhaps every weekend, at least online, we're seeing chatters of uh, more demonstrations planned for the rest of this month. Against that backdrop, we've got this Financial Times report over the weekend that says Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam did offer to step down on several occasions over the last month or so, but it was actually Beijing that didn't let her go, didn't let her call it quits. One important and very powerful quote in that report goes on to say, quote, Beijing, however, has insisted that Miss Lam has to stay to clean up the mess that she created. So, uh, perhaps it's a positive sign in that we're not going to get a power vacuum in leadership vacuum in Hong Kong. But it also goes to show what kind of um, attitude, what kind of stance that Beijing authorities have in terms of containing the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, this is very much in line with uh, the commentaries that we've been getting from China watchers who've been saying that Beijing authorities are not going to show any send any kind of message of budging giving in to popular pressure uh, coming from the people of Hong Kong, one of its uh, territories. So I think that's also a very an important point that uh, we need to make at this point, guys. All right, uh, Sherry, thank you very much for weighing in on a tricky situation over there in Hong Kong. Well, from uh, one political storm of sorts to an actual storm, Storm Barry has weakened from a Category 1 hurricane into a tropical depression as it continues to head through northern Louisiana. But the storm battered the state coast over the weekend, engulfing several towns and temporarily shutting down almost three-quarters of U.S. crude production around the Gulf of Mexico. Forecasters are now warning Barry could still unleash more devastating floods in areas along the Mississippi Valley. NBC's Carrie Sanders has this report. In Louisiana today. 
Barry still making a mess. Today, ominous skies and multiple tornado warnings. And Baton Rouge took a beating as the storm lingered over the city for several hours. While no longer a hurricane, the weather system is still dangerous. What's left of Barry is now slowly crawling north, also impacting Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas. Cities like Little Rock and Memphis could see flash flooding. Even as far east as Florida, the storm revealing its sustained power. A large wave shattering a rescue boat window, leaving a deputy with cuts on his face. More than 24 hours since landfall, and there's still more drenching rain to come. Today, a first look at that levee problem in southern Louisiana. Myrtle Grove overwhelmed. The rushing water threatened to submerge homes some five miles away. It's kind of scary. It's kind of sad. Residents who evacuated came home today with a demand they've repeated for years. They want government to build a new, stronger levee. I'm tired of hearing, oh, we got to do a study, we got to do a study. On Saturday, along Louisiana's Gulf Coast, the U.S. Coast Guard rescued 12 people, including this man and a dog, stranded by the rising floodwaters. While in southeastern Louisiana today, Highway 23 through Plaquemines Parish reopened. One side still underwater will likely be dry by tomorrow. Uh, moving on, New York government and utility officials are still scrambling to find out what caused Saturday's five-hour blackout in large sections of Manhattan. A transformer explosion apparently cut power from West 30th, 30th Street to West 72nd Street, affecting some 73,000 people. The New York mayor, Bill de Blasio, said the city's main utility provider, Con Edison, has ruled out a usage surge being behind the blackout, while he also dismissed it uh, may have been an act of terrorism or a cyber attack. Let's get back to uh, individual corporates. ABM Bev has, says it's cancelled the public offering of its Asia-Pacific subsidiary, a Budweiser brewing company, for now. Valued at $9.8 billion, it would have been the world's largest IPO of the year. The company blamed prevailing market conditions for the decision. I think that's absolute rubbish. There you go. Uh, and I'm going to say that. Prevailing market conditions. Shall I tell you about prevailing market conditions, viewers? Because I don't have to tell Juliana because she already knows, but I'm looking <laughs> at her. Uh, prevailing market conditions are the following. The fact is we have record levels on a whole host of global markets. We have markets being fueled by expectations of cheaper financing on, incidentally, debt, which is a very important story for AB and MBEV as well. We are talking about prevailing market conditions that have taken this stock up, as of this moment, 36.8%. I'm sorry, if you can't get away a stock in record markets when your own stock has gone up 37%, then what do you think it is? Bearing in mind, to add to that fact, we've got a massive de-equitization going on globally, i.e. there are less equities to buy. So hence, the pool of buyers are having to search harder to find equities as well and the fact we've got trillions on the sidelines from private equity as well. You don't think you ask for too much money, do you? I'm just asking the likes of JP and Morgan Stanley as well. I believe they're the, the banks behind this one as well. Because the fact of the matter is, day one, it's an IPO, okay? Let's get over this. Let's get back to facts. Day one, it's an IPO. Day two, it's just another stock. Mm. It's just another stock that people are pricing up, whether they're pricing it at 18 times forward for a consumer-facing stock or a bit more because it's got higher growth in Asia as well. So it's just another stock on day two. And if you can't get this away, that has to say a lot about pricing. Ultimately, it has to come down to price. To, your, to, to 
to that point. I mean, so it's market conditions at this moment in time, as you say, have been incredibly strong. Yes, the market is uncertain moving forward. The outlook is plagued sure. with a number of uncertainties, but it does come down to price. I think from a company perspective, uh, as you said, the deleveraging is key for uh, AB InBev. So from a, a stock perspective, the analyst community uh, expects this stock to open lower this morning because it puts into question their time frame for deleveraging and also their time frame for future M&A. This was a huge reason for this IPO. So the stock itself would expect to come under pressure this morning. Sure. And I'm seeing all the column inches about concerns about Asia growth and concerns about this. People are still going to drink beer. People drink beer regardless. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a question of what, A, you're trying to price this at, and B, what you think the growth rate is going forward. On the debt front as well, it is interesting, and that's what all the, the, the pundits and the, and the analysts that I'm looking at have focused in on as well, saying, oh, well, they really need this to get the debt down. Well, if we're in an easing cycle, nobody's desperate to have a, a less efficient capital structure or get the debt down as much. Look, this is a company which has grown by enormous acquisitions as well, hence the title, Anheuser Bush in Bev. You know, there's many companies in there as well. Uh, I think you're right. Just one more point. Consumer discretionaries on Friday in the US hit a record high. Consumer staples hit a record high. If you can't get IPOs away in this market, what does it say about your pricing? I think it fits into the conversation we've been having for the last couple of weeks around the influx of private equity into markets. It's yeah. put a tremendous amount of pressure on IPOs and bankers for them to offer companies a competing bid in the IPO market that they could get from private equities. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.